So I hope everyone had an enjoyable lunch. Um, let's kick it off because we've got quite a long agenda for, for the rest of the afternoon. So this is our climate risk segment and I'm very happy that we've got two speakers who will be discussing climate risk today with us. Um, first up is Dr. Jennifer Fitchett. Um, Jennifer is a senior lecturer in physical geography at the School of Geography, Archaeology and Environmental Studies at the University of the Witwatersrand. I should just say WITS. She graduated with a PhD in paleoclimatology in 2015, which was completed through a split program at WITS and the University College of London. Her research explores climate change over long um, periods of time, up to tens of thousands of years, to short time periods, and the impacts on natural and human environments. She's published 40 journal articles, four book chapters, and three conference proceedings to date. So we're very happy and privileged that we've got a researcher of Jennifer's stature here today, and please join me in welcoming her. Thanks very much. Um, as I've been introduced as, I'm a climatologist, so I am not involved in insurance in any way. Um, I did MAM 1000 at UCT, and I don't know if anyone in the room did MAM 1000, and as they say, cried their way through MAM 1000, but that's probably the last time I had any interaction with uh, any actuarial uh, students at that point in time, or any actuarial scientists, um, and they were very much the people who understood what was happening in MAM 1000 while I cried my way through it. Um, but this is certainly uh, an interesting place for me to be speaking to you because a lot of my students have been asking me for quite some years, what is the engagement of the insurance sector with issues around climate change and particularly around tropical cyclone risk? And how can they, as climate practitioners, start to speak and start to engage with issues around how we understand risk and how people are preparing for risk in this particular field? Um, so I've given the title of this talk as Changing Tropical Cyclone Patterns Under Climate Change, which is very much uh, one of my key research focuses, uh, is the patterns in these storm types over the last 60 years. But then starting to point towards issues and challenges that we anticipate from the climate science perspective uh, for the insurance sector, particularly in a developing country context. Uh, for those of you who either did high school geography a very long time ago or perhaps didn't even do high school geography, mm -hmm. I'll begin with a, a short description of what tropical cyclones are, uh, just so we make sure that we're all on the same page. So we refer to them as uh, climate scientists as large, well-organized storm systems that are formed over the tropical regions of each of the oceans. But that's a very broad definition and it could encompass quite a number of different storm types. So a tropical cyclone is born as a tropical uh, depression, which is a, a isolated area of uplift somewhere over the ocean's basin. And it then develops into a stronger storm over time. It becomes a tropical storm. And at the point where it has a sustained wind speed that exceeds 110 kilometers an hour and a very low pressure central uh, component of the system of less than 890 um, hectopascals, that's the point at which we would term it a tropical cyclone. And it's at that point in time that the storm system has uh, the very distinct radial arms uh, that you can see in the first picture on your left-hand side. Um, it also has a distinct eye to the system, which is an area of calm right in the middle of the system. And it's the type of storm that we hear about in the news. So at the moment, we uh, are hearing a lot about uh, Hurricane Dorian um, in the Atlantic. That is exactly the type of storm that we're talking about here. And it's the same type of storm that we experienced with Cyclone um, uh, Idai earlier this year uh, in Mozambique. So uh, as I've alluded to, all of these refer to the same type of storm. So if you're in the Atlantic Ocean, the East Pacific Ocean, or the Caribbean Sea, you would hear about hurricanes. If you're in the Western uh, North Pacific Ocean, you'd hear about typhoons. 
And if you're in the Indian Ocean, we use the standard scientific term, which is tropical cyclone, to refer to these systems. But they're all identical systems, and they're all measured in the same way, despite the fact that they're named differently. Uh, you'll then see that these storms have names attached to them. So we had Idai, at the moment there's uh, Hurricane Dorian, and those names are uh, allocated alphabetically at the beginning of each cyclone season, and they're names that are given per region. Um, and a region is not necessarily an ocean basin, so you can have subregions within an ocean basin, and these names are submitted by a particular area to the World Meteorological Organization, and they determine ahead of time what those storm names are. Um, so an important thing if you're trying to monitor these storms as they're forming is to know that if we're talking about a cyclone Idai, we're talking about a storm that's actually pretty far down the cyclone season for that particular region in that particular year. If you have a storm with the names uh, A, B, or C, we're talking about some of the first few storms. And ordinarily, as we move through to about D, E, F, um, and, and right the way through to about G and H, those are our strongest storms that we experience in a given year because we've had the accumulation of heat, and I'll speak a lot about the, the requirements for formation, but we've got enough of an accumulation of heat that we can form these really intense storms uh, that are likely to make the news. So where do these storms form? Uh, in front of you is a map produced by uh, NOAA, the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration of the United States, that captures in their IB tracks record every single tropical cyclone that has formed from 1850 until present, and the, the path that those storms followed. Now, in the early records, we have a, a quite a large degree of uncertainty. Um, we only knew about storms if they made landfall or if they were encountered by a ship. Uh, as we moved through into the 1920s through 1940s, we started to use aerial reconnaissance. And then from about 1970 onwards, we've been relying on uh, remote sensing and satellite imagery mm -hmm. to be able to track these storms. So we certainly know a lot more about the storms today than we did in the past. But looking at this diagram, you can see that there are distinct regions that do and don't have these types of storms forming. Um, and most notable for the name tropical cyclone is that there's a complete absence of these storms across the tropics. Um, so if we look at the equator, there's a, an, an absence of these storms, and we have them moving outwards radially from about 5 degrees north and south uh, to what is understood to be about 20 degrees north and south. Um, so that's the area in which we find these storms. Uh, what might be standing out to you is that there's only one storm that has ever formed in the South Atlantic Ocean. And that's an interesting uh, function of the uh, narrow feature of that ocean basin, but also to the role of thermohaline circulation, which brings a lot of cold water uh, through that channel and actually hampers those storms from forming. If we zoom into the uh, South Indian Ocean and the Southern Hemisphere more broadly, um, so an area of interest to everyone in this room, uh, what I'm showing you in, in the maps in front of you are two plots, uh, which are heat density maps, so it's looking at the total numbers of storms that have formed in a particular ocean basin. And here we're looking at the period of remote sensing and satellite imagery for the Southern Hemisphere, so we're looking from 1968 onwards. And you can see there are distinct regions which have a greater uh, frequency of storm formation. Again, uh, we're seeing that they're not right along the band of the equator. And in fact, for the southern hemisphere, that typical understanding of 5 to 20 degrees is not quite correct. We're really looking at about 9 degrees through to 30 degrees uh, south as our band in which tropical cyclones form. And then we have some distinct areas of hotspots where storms are forming and storms are intensifying uh, to what is their uh, lifetime maximum intensity, so the point at which they have the highest wind speeds. 
And those largely correlate with pools of much warmer water in the ocean basins. Those then uh, vary year on year. So we've got two key features um, in the Indian Ocean, which is the uh, Indian Ocean Dipole. In the Pacific Ocean, we've got your El Nino Southern Oscillation Effect. And then we have a, a band of moisture that moves across um, from east to west, which is termed the Madden-Julian Oscillation. And that gives us a month-to-month -month variance in these patterns um, of hotspots. So why do these storms form in these regions? If we go back to the early literature on tropical cyclones, the most definitive work uh, is published by Gray in 1975, which outlines six key requirements for the formation of tropical cyclones. And again, for anyone in this room who did high school geography, I'm sure you had to wrote learn these and repeat them back to your teacher in about grade 10 or 11. Um, so conventional wisdom would hold that we require a sea surface temperature of greater than 26.5 degrees Celsius to at least a 50 meter depth in the ocean. Uh, we require atmospheric instability, which in climatology refers to the ability for air to rise rather than subside, um, so the potential for uplift. Uh, we require high humidity, although at uh, the point of this 1975 paper that hadn't been defined. Uh, we require Coriolis force to induce a horizontal rotation and to be able to form the spiral bands of the system, but also to bring moisture in from adjacent areas and bring heat in. And Coriolis is a function of latitude. If we look at the physical dynamics, we would calculate that as a function of latitude. And if we are at the equator and we have a latitude of zero, our Coriolis is in effect zero. And that's because your Coriolis is the effect of the rotation around the Earth at its maximum point, which is, of course, the equator. Uh, we also require low-level disturbance. So that means something that is causing uplift right at the surface. Um, so something that is engaging with the air um, and friction to be able to encourage uplift. And then finally, we require low vertical wind shear. And wind shear refers to the difference in the wind speed and direction from the surface of the ground to the upper air uh, or the, the top of the troposphere level, so how those vary. So considering these various factors, um, the question that we're often asked is, does South Africa ever experience tropical cyclones? And if we look back at the IB tracks record and we zoom into Southern Africa, uh, you might notice from this plot that no storm track has ever touched South Africa. Um, so no tropical cyclone or the eye of any tropical cyclone has ever made landfall on South Africa. We've had three tropical storms, so they aren't yet at category one intensity of, of a tropical cyclone uh, that made landfall along the KwaZulu-Natal coast, but we have had no tropical cyclones. You will, however, have seen uh, in the news in February 2017, uh, headlines, tropical cyclone Deneo is heading for us and heavy rains and floods coming despite Deneo's downgrade. And uh, across Limpopo province in particular, people were very concerned about the storm track of tropical cyclone Deneo and the impacts that that would have on potential for flooding in southern Africa. And they weren't wrong because um, a tropical cyclone storm path is determined by the center of that storm. But even a Category 1 tropical cyclone, which was the intensity of Cyclone Deneo, has a radius of about 100 kilometers. So a storm that's making landfall in southern Mozambique is a storm that is going to have very strong winds and high rainfall experienced in the northern areas of southern Africa. Uh, the same thing was experienced in 2000 with Cyclone Eileen. And right the way across northern uh, South Africa, we've got rainfall records that indicate 
more rainfall in the month of February alone than in the rest of the year for any other year. So we certainly do have the impact of tropical cyclones, even though we aren't affected by the storms themselves. And that in itself poses some very difficult um, uh, challenges in trying to understand the risk of tropical cyclones to South Africa. Because any of the models would indicate that we are not affected by the storm system, but we're affected by the broader conditions and the weather that is associated with that storm. So if we want to look at what is likely to happen in future, uh, if you look at any of the IPCC assessment reports from about assessment report three onwards, the IPCC argued that under climate change, we can expect any severe weather event to increase in its frequency and in its intensity. And that's certainly true for some of these climate events, but for tropical cyclones, there's a degree more complexity because of the paths that these storms follow. So the top plot over here shows you all of the tropical cyclones in the South Indian Ocean over the period of about 1970 to present. And there has been an increase in those storms. There's also a tremendous amount of interannual variability. But if we look to Mozambique, which is the area of interest to us, we see that in the last uh, so 50 years or so, we've had a decrease in tropical cyclone numbers. So that time period is significant because that's a time period in which we've got satellite remote uh, sensing of these storms, and we know that we're picking up every single storm that has formed. So if you look at the complete plot where we don't have breakpoint analysis, you'll see that there has been a supposed increase in storms. We're just becoming better at monitoring them. But in Mozambique itself, we are experiencing less storms than before. The reason for this is largely because Madagascar forms a buffer for us. So if we look at the path that storms form, uh, follow, uh, we have a large uh, direct incidence of storms making landfall on Madagascar that have formed somewhere in the South Indian Ocean. They can travel as far as uh, from the Australian coastline right the way across to Madagascar, and they make landfall there. The storms that are making landfall on Mozambique, only 5% of those that made landfall on Madagascar have enough strength to continue across uh, the Madagascan island uh, exit on the other side and move through the Mozambique Channel to make landfall on, on Mozambique. Uh, the remainder of those storms either form north of Madagascar and they then channel down through the Mozambique Channel. Uh, they're 34.5% that form in the Mozambique Channel itself um, and then go on to make landfall on Mozambique and that was the case with uh, Cyclone Edai. And then we have 13.5% that track southwards of Madagascar and actually fall outside of the band of the tropics, they're south of the Tropic of Capricorn, and they're the ones that tend to make landfall in southern Mozambique. So a large part of the reason why we're getting a reduction in the number of storms over the Mozambique area is because we are instead getting storms that are making landfall on Madagascar or storms that are dissipating somewhere else in the ocean. And that's an important part of research that we're conducting into the dynamics of these storms going forward. So we're getting less storms, particularly in the Mozambique area. But instead, as the IPCC would suggest, we're getting an intensification of the storm. So a tropical cyclone is measured in its intensity according to the Saffir-Simpson scale. And we rank them, and I'll speak a bit more about the uh, scale in a few moments, but we rank them on the basis of how strong they are, uh, how bad the winds are, and what the capacity for damage is. Now, in the North Atlantic, Category 5 tropical cyclones have been recorded since 1924. For the South Indian Ocean, the first Category 5 tropical cyclone on record is in 1994. 
And that's quite some time after we've had remote sensing of satellites, so we, uh, of tropical cyclones, so we know that those satellites are picking up all of the storms. And in fact, it's quite some years after we had a geostationary satellite positioned over the Indian Ocean. Uh, the North Indian Ocean experienced its first Category 5 tropical cyclone in 1989. So we're getting a, a change in our dynamics of these storms in our region, and that's quite notable. What's even more notable is that if we look at the number of storms since 1994, we're seeing an, a really significant exponential increase in these storm numbers at Category 5 intensity. So if we look at that first decade from about 94 uh, to 99, there were only four storms. Uh, if we look from 2010 onwards, we've doubled that, and we're not even at the end of that decade. So these are becoming the dominant storm type in this ocean basin. And the reduction in total storm numbers is actually revealing less and less storms that remain at Category 1 or 2 intensity. And most of the storms that are forming are intensifying to much greater uh, categories. If we look at the dynamics of those storms, we don't have very many, so we're certainly not talking about any degree of statistical significance here. But we're seeing a progressive southward trend in where these storms are converting to Category 5 from Category 4 or 3, and where they're dissipating from Category 5. And if we start to look at these patterns of where the average uh, area of formation was right at the beginning of the record in 1994 to where it is now, we're seeing a shift from storms that, if they were in the western half of the South Indian Ocean, would be making landfall right at the uh, northern tip of Madagascar or Mozambique, to storms that would track further and further towards central Madagascar and central Mozambique. And indeed, if we look at Cyclone Idai, so that had a maximum intensity of Category 4, That storm made landfall in, in Beira, which is just about exactly where that green band for the modern day is positioned. So why are we particularly concerned about Category 5 storms? Um, this is where the significance of the Saffir-Simpson classification comes in. So we're classifying primarily on wind speed and central pressure. And if we're talking about a wind speed of a Category 1 storm, so that was Cyclone Deneo, we're talking about a wind speed of about 120 to 150 kilometers an hour. When we're talking about a Category 5 storm, we're talking about wind speeds in excess of 250 kilometers an hour. Associated with that is a storm surge. So that's the wave that uh, makes landfall on the coastline associated with the winds that drive a tropical cyclone. And in the case of a Category 1 tropical cyclone, we're talking about a 1.2 to 1.5 meter storm surge wave. If we're talking Category 5, we're looking in the, uh, at a minimum of a 5.5 meter Uh, wave associated with that storm surge. So um, there's some videos that have been circulating over the last day on social media um, about si uh, Hurricane Dorian in the United States. And there you've got people who are sitting on the second floor and even the third floor of their apartment blocks and have water rushing in their front doors. And that is precisely the effect of the storm surge. So that's not rainwater coming in. That's literally the level of the sea surface for uh, about a day during that storm. Um, Associated with each of these categories is an indication of the type of damage expected. Uh, so if we're talking about Category 1, it's very dangerous winds, and it will produce some damage. And often people will show uh, videos associated with Category 1 storms where you'll have some roof tiles that have been blown off a roof. Uh, you may have small objects that have been blown over in a garden. When we move to a Category 5 storm, we speak about catastrophic damage that will inevitably occur. So this is the point at which we are getting complete destruction of buildings, destruction of bridges, destruction of roads, um, trees that are being uprooted completely. That's the type of damage we associate with Category 5. 
And even in developed countries like the United States, Category 5 is the point at which they evacuate everyone. There is no uh, possibility of keeping people in their homes when a storm of that magnitude is likely to make landfall. That's a point where three days in advance, you want to get people out, you want to prioritize human safety. Uh, you're no longer looking at trying to protect possessions. The second significance about the category of a storm is the size of the storm. Um, and unfortunately, these two satellite images aren't of equivalent scale. But if you look at Cyclone Deneo in 2017, we're really zoomed in there. And you can see that that storm system doesn't even quite make uh, the full uh, width of the Mozambique Channel. If we look at Cyclone Idai 2019, at this point it was a Category 4 storm, that is exceeding the width of the Mozambique Channel, and indeed those storm bands continue right the way across Madagascar and caused tremendous flooding in Madagascar uh, before it made landfall in Mozambique. So the storms are much bigger. Um, uh, this is an image that's come from the United States, which looks at uh, some of the key hurricanes that have made landfall and their relative sizes. And again, you can see that as we move through the categories, the storms become bigger and bigger. So as a rough rule of thumb, we say that if we're looking at a Category 1 storm, we're talking about a 100-kilometer radius. If we're talking about a Category 5 storm, we're talking about a 500-kilometer radius. So again, if we think about the fact that these storms are making landfall in Mozambique, a storm that has a radius of 500 kilometers is increasingly going to start influencing South Africa, regardless of where that storm makes landfall. But to add an even greater degree of threat to us, um, what we're seeing over time is a progressive poleward movement in all of our storms. I showed you that for those few Category 5 storms, we had a poleward trend. Uh, this is showing every single storm in the South um, Indian Ocean and in the Southern Hemisphere. And right the way across the Southern Hemisphere, we are getting this progressive poleward movement in all tropical cyclones. Now, the reason for that comes back to the requirements for formation. So if we look at Gray's 1975 categories uh, for formation, we have a minimum 26.5 uh, degrees sea surface temperature for these storms to form. As the oceans are warming up, and the Indian Ocean has warmed by about 0.3 degrees in the last 30 years, the position of that 26.5 degree isotherm, or line of equal temperature, is expanding. So where we would previously have had regular temperatures in the range of 26.5 degrees around the northern tip of Madagascar, we are now experiencing those temperatures right the way through middle uh, Madagascar through to southern Madagascar. And that's increasing the range in which these storms can form, and it's allowing these storms to track further and further south during their lifespan. And the storms are inclined to do that because they're driven by Coriolis force, and your Coriolis force intensifies the closer you move towards the poles. So we're really taking two conditions there um, and amplifying both of them through this uh, poleward trajectory. So we're getting bigger and bigger storms with stronger and stronger winds that are increasingly moving towards southern Mozambique and increasing in their area of, uh, of influence to create quite serious threats for southern Africa. The next thing we need to consider is areas that are... Um, in high risk of tropical cyclones, so we look at the number of tropical cyclones that occur per uh, cyclone season, we look at how many of them make landfall and their intensity at landfall, and we can categorize regions around the world in terms of a very rough estimate of their risk. And so areas in red are higher risk, areas in green are areas that could experience a tropical cyclone but are at very low risk of those. If we then look at population density, most of the areas that were red are also areas that have very, very uh, significant population densities and growing population densities. 
Um, and that is because people like to live at the beach. People like to live in uh, coastal conditions where there is warm water. And so those same east coasts that have glorious warm water, and if you think about Durban uh, or Mozambique, uh, you can go swimming just about any time around the year. That is the same conditions that encourage the formation of tropical cyclones. So we're getting more and more people living in these areas that are now experiencing stronger and more deadly tropical cyclones. So what does it mean? We need to start to monitor these storms a lot better. The problem with the tropical cyclone is that the season of tropical cyclones, if we're in the southern hemisphere, stretches from November through to May. So we can't say we're in a storm season, everyone evacuate, because that would be, I mean, people have second homes, but we're taking this to extremes here. Um, so instead, people look at the path that a storm is following, and they determine usually about three days beforehand whether or not you need to evacuate an area and whether or not you are in particular risk. But the problem here is that these storms are very unpredictable in their paths that they follow anywhere in the world. But in Southern Africa, they're particularly variable in the path that they follow because they have to track through the Mozambique Channel or they have to make a path across Madagascar. And the Mozambique Channel has a large number of, of ocean eddies. So it's large pools of circulating warm water and that warm water then allows for a storm to intensify, but it also stalls a storm in a particular area. So Cyclone Idai stalled for about three days before it made landfall. And in that time, no one was entirely sure whether it was going to make landfall on Mozambique or landfall on Madagascar. So in our local news, we heard about the concerns for Mozambique, but there were equal concerns for Madagascar. So this is uh, Cyclone Elena in 1983, which uh, was one of the types of storms that forms north of uh, Madagascar and then tracks through the Mozambique Channel straight down following the Agalis Current and makes landfall along the Mozambique uh, coastline. But if we look at Cyclone Elita in 2004, we're starting to get an idea of the complexity in some of these storms. So this is a storm that formed um, just uh, in a similar area in the Mozambique Channel. It tracked across Madagascar uh, from west to east, which is a very unusual pattern. It then tracked back again through Madagascar and back again through Madagascar to eventually dissipate uh, off the southeast of Madagascar. And then you get storms such as Fabio in 2007, which track south of Madagascar and make landfall uh, on Mozambique in an almost straight path. That's just three examples. Almost every storm has had a markedly different pattern in the path that it follows. And that makes it incredibly difficult to determine when it will make landfall, where it will make landfall, and at what intensity it's going to make landfall. Because the longer it's over warm oceans, the greater the potential for intensification. So the implications in Southern Africa are of a region of very low adaptive capacity. We are necessarily putting far more money and attention into basic service provision, into ensuring people have houses and water and electricity, rather than building tropical cyclone strength infrastructure that would be able to withstand a Category 5 storm, which may or may not happen in the next 50 years. Um, and that's an absolutely fair prioritization, but it does leave these areas along the East Coast open to tremendous risk. This is compounded by population density along coastal regions, um, inf insufficient infrastructural strength. So even when we have tropical storms coming through, so those aren't even at tropical cyclone intensity, we're getting quite serious damage to bridges, to roads, and areas that are being cut off uh, from uh, the major cities. We've got considerable modeling restrictions in Southern Africa. So we've got two centers that have the supercomputing strength 
to produce climate forecasts and climate models. And the huge amount of pressure on those is such that we are not trying to model day-by-day storms. We're trying to look at long-term plans. We're trying to look at what the drought capacity is by 2050. And even where we can, we're hampered by these ocean-atmosphere interactions that are taking place in the Mozambique Channel. The storm track variability then plays in during the lifespan of the storm because we don't know where they're going to go. And then we've got the problem that our warning systems and evacuation plans are yet non-existent. And that was really um, demonstrated by Cyclone Edai and by the tremendous loss of life that took place in Beira and the surrounds. And South Africa is even worse prepared. And Mozambique has had major tropical cyclones in the past. So what do we then try to understand in terms of implications? Uh, this is my one and only foray into trying to quantify some of the tropical cyclone impacts, uh, where we looked at um, uh, Storm Dando. It wasn't actually a tropical cyclone at the time when it made landfall. Uh, it made landfall in 2012, and the Mapani District Municipality in uh, Limpopo, which is one of the key areas of um, outdoor and nature-based tourism, an assessment was done of the various lodges and tourism operations in the different subsectors of that area, trying to quantify what were the costs that they experienced both directly and indirectly from the storm, uh, what types of costs would never be recovered uh, even if they were insured, what types of costs were they just not insured for because they didn't realize it would be a problem. Um, and then trying to get an understanding of how many businesses had to close for a day, a week, and perhaps a few months. And of those businesses, were they able to get back on their feet afterwards? And we realized just the significant impact of a small tropical storm um, relative to the type of storm that we saw with the die. Um, so this is just one indication of the type of impacts that can occur and the lack of preparedness amongst businesses, particularly small and emerging businesses, who are barely able to keep afloat as it is, who are then often knocked out of business with a single storm event. Um, what we then need to think more about is how certain we are about what we know. Um, and what I'm putting in front of you now is some work that one of my uh, very recently graduated master's students, Michael Pillay, and I have been working on, where we are reassessing all the tropical cyclones in the southern hemisphere to see whether we are working on the correct assumptions. So I've spoken quite a bit about the gray 1975 conditions for formation, and those are taken as rule anywhere in the world. And we had two questions. We first asked, those were developed from the northern hemisphere, do they apply for the Southern Hemisphere? We know that we have substantially greater proportions of, of ocean water in the Southern Hemisphere and much more narrow continental masses. And that affects our heat balance quite significantly. We also have very different dynamics in terms of how water moves through the oceans in the Southern Hemisphere to the Northern Hemisphere. So we already were concerned that that is an incorrect assumption because we can't just apply Northern Hemisphere climates to the Southern Hemisphere. But secondly, a lot has happened in terms of climate change since 1975. So if we look at any of our plots of the types of storms that we're experiencing now to 1975, already we know we have Category 5 storms that didn't exist then. So we set out to look at each of those conditions and whether or not they held true for the, I think it was something crazy, like 1,000 storms uh, that occurred in the, in the Southern Hemisphere. And we found that it wasn't true. Um, and most startling, we found that in the Southern Hemisphere, tropical cyclones are forming in much cooler oceans than we thought were necessary. So we are having tropical cyclones that are forming at around 24, 25 degrees Celsius, not 26, 27 degrees. 
So if we think that our southward trajectory is because we're having an increase in the area that is experiencing 26.5 degrees, we have an even bigger area that is experiencing storms in the region of 24 degrees Celsius. 24 degrees Celsius is Durban in midwinter. So that's telling us a lot about how we're underestimating storm capacity. We also see that storms are forming under much lower humidity than we originally thought. So we're getting tropical cyclones that form under humidity of about 75%. And if we think about humidity as the total amount of water in any package of air, that's only three quarters of the air mass that is filled with water. That's quite easy to reach, again, in an area such as Durban. We looked at the highest intensity storms as well. So we looked at these category four, category five storms, and we looked at, at their genesis as a storm, what kind of conditions were experienced then. And that's where we start to see the conditions that you read about in the conditions for formation. So that's where we're starting to get 27 degrees, 28 degrees. That's where we're starting to get a humidity of 80%. But those conditions that we've been tracking and we've been modeling for the Southern Hemisphere, those aren't the conditions to experience a tropical cyclone. Those are the conditions to experience a category four or five tropical cyclone, which has the capacity with a 500 kilometer radius to wipe out entire areas. So there is a huge amount of uncertainty that we've revealed. We can't quantify it, and I know that Ronald was very, very keen for me to quantify this, and we, we aren't the people to do that. And I think that's one of the key avenues for engagement uh, with sectors that are looking at risk is if we know that we're modeling things incorrectly, if we know that we could actually experience storms under conditions that are very normal right now, how do we start to anticipate these types uh, of risk? How do we pinpoint the risk to a particular location? And is it worth people developing infrastructure to be able to withstand a storm that may not happen even in the next 50 years? So to conclude, the first thing that our research has found is that there is an increase in the influence of tropical cyclones in South Africa. That's because we've got an increase in the amount of storm formation over the South Indian Ocean. We have a poleward shift in storm landfall, and that's increasing the incidence of storms that are tracking south of the uh, Madagascan coastline and making landfall in southern uh, Mozambique. And as sea surface temperatures are warming, the southward trend is intensifying. And we have an increase in the intensity of the storms, which results in a much greater storm radius. We know now that there's significant uh, damage that's associated with the rain, the wind speed, and the storm surges, even when these remain tropical storms and not yet tropical cyclones. And this poses tremendous damage to infrastructure, threats to the tourism sectors, and major uh, agricultural losses, which can wipe out a crop uh, for a particular year. And so what we need to start to think about in a Southern African context is whether we want to place our attention towards adaptive capacity, whether we want to start to build the roads, the bridges, the houses that can withstand a tropical cyclone, or are we looking at the point where we're really going to be experiencing a category four or five storm where none of those infrastructures will help at all? So is it then rather a case of putting our energy into disaster risk management, into ensuring that we've got the capacity to evacuate people efficiently out of an area and move them back in after um, a sufficient amount of recovery has been made? Where will we send those people? What will we do with those people? And how do we protect some of these emerging sectors uh, that our economy is so reliant on, such as tourism and agriculture? And then I think there's a tremendous potential to consider the implications for the insurance sector. 
How are you going to model these types of risk when climatologists ourselves won't be able to tell you whether there'll be a Category 3 storm again in Mozambique next year or where it will make landfall? If we can't tell you whether there will be one or five storms in a particular area in a particular season. And if we don't yet know the size of a storm until usually about two hours before it makes landfall. What is the capacity there for understanding this type of risk? And how do you then engage people with it so that they as a public understand the risk and they're preparing themselves for the types of challenges that they might expect? Um, so that, that is a very interesting and um, well-researched presentation with a lot of numbers that maybe as actuaries we're not so familiar with. Um, let me open the floor to questions. We have about five or six minutes. Um, so, so who'd like to ask Jennifer something about this? Thanks, Jennifer. It was uh, very insightful. And I've always been very skeptical about uh, hurricanes and the like in terms of their relevance for South Africa. But what's, uh, it's, it's actually more of a comment that I've got rather than a question. Um, if you, if, uh, I mean, pretty much everyone in the room would be familiar with the Nisner fires that happened uh, two years ago. And what's really interesting about that year from a catastrophe point of view is that actually the storms that occurred across uh, Natal and up to Johannesburg cost um, obviously net of reinsurance, but cost us pretty much the same as what the, the fires cost us in that year. Yeah. So it's, it's certainly not a topic to ignore. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and what's really interesting about the storms in Durban, um, which is not something that I focus tremendously on, is that those are often cut-off low systems, and they are the function of a mid-latitude cyclone coming through that has been interrupted. And again, these are then very difficult storms to be able to anticipate um, because it's a very specific set of ocean atmospheric conditions that causes them. So again, you know that there may be a cutoff low about a day beforehand, and the effects of that cutoff low are then the next week or so afterwards of intense flooding. Um, but it's very interesting to know those kinds of numbers because, uh, as I say, we're very insular in the way that we look at things. Um, I, my research does extend into tourism and climate change, hence the study um, following the, the floods in 2012. But even then, we're only seeing one small sector's uh, impacts from one particular storm. Some more questions? Oh, I just wanted to know if anything is being done now to warn people who stay in those areas of the risk of yeah, those storms or the heavy rains, etc. Is government doing anything about it or are we waiting for the disaster? <laughs> it depends who and where, really. Um, so the IDP for Durban uh, was aware of the potential for large storms, um, not really tropical cyclones, but large storms. Uh, increasingly, as people are starting to do strategic plans, they're incorporating tropical cyclones into that for particular sectors. Um, so I was doing some consulting work a week ago involving um, uh, hydroelectric power plants in Madagascar, and that is one of the key concerns. But no, not enough. So particularly if you're looking at the communities that have the lowest adaptive capacity. So there is a degree of media attention. There is a degree of um, the South African Weather Service putting out notices. But if you're living in a very rural community, whether you're in Mozambique or in South Africa, you're not being given the type of information that allows you to make very informed decisions about what to do. So you may see headlines saying a storm is coming. Are you really going to abandon all of your possessions because the news is saying a storm is coming? You'll think, I've experienced many storms. And so I think that's some of the biggest challenges is 
at what point do you have the threshold where you say, I'm well enough protected that I can leave my house and I can go and stay in a hotel for two weeks and I can return afterwards even if it isn't a big threat? And, and with these storms, we don't know. Often we know, as I said, if a couple of hours before what the intensity will be on landfall. I think there's time for one more. Thanks. That was fascinating and beautifully delivered. Um, I don't know if I missed the link. Um, you did mention that we are experiencing more frequent um, severity of these water formations. But I, I didn't clearly hear the link with the popular topic of global warming. You did mention the north parts where Mozambique is, and I come from that side. Um, and we have started to experience some very high, high temperatures. I was at the Kruger National Park in December, and it went up to like 47 degrees the one day. So, and I mean, they have a very agricultural subsistence, subsistence farming uh, livelihood style, and they used to plant their crops at a certain time. They'd even call the months of the year according to that, and that has stopped now. So you now have months of the year which are mismatched with yeah. when they used to plant their crops. But yeah, um, that link with the global warming thing, I didn't hear it as a thread coming through clearly. Sure. Um, the reason for that is there is an easy answer and then there's a very complex answer about the role of climate change. Uh, the easy answer is that as the atmosphere warms up, the oceans are warming up as well. Uh, we need, uh, if you take the original assessment, we need 26.5 degrees sea surface temperature for a storm to form. For Southern Africa, we're now actually seeing that that's as low as 25 degrees. But as the oceans warm up, if you were in uh, northern Mozambique and you often have sea surface temperatures there of 30 to 32 degrees, those are now warmer than 30 to 32 degrees. Those are coming towards 33, 33.5 degrees. And if we're down in Durban, where we would experience normal sea surface temperatures of between 26 and 28 degrees, those are increasingly moving up towards 29, 30 degrees. So the greatest implication of climate change for tropical cyclones in the region is changing the area in which they're occurring. So they're occurring further and further south because our water is warm enough further and further south as the oceans warm up. The more complex story is that we also have factors that are preventing tropical cyclone formation under climate change. And that's why for Mozambique, we're actually getting a reduction in tropical cyclone numbers. And the most significant of those is uh, vertical wind shear. So the difference between surface and upper level wind speed and direction. Uh, we're increasing that vertical shear due to climate change because we're intensifying our circulation systems. And it means that a potential storm that might form is actually being ripped apart before it can get going. Um, so we have a very high vertical wind shear, which prevents most of these storms from getting going. But if it was low enough, by chance, when the storm forms, it's going to become a very strong storm because it's now a storm in much warmer waters. And that's why we're getting a, a greater in incidence of category four, four and five storms in the region. Um, and, and also, second part of your question was about uh, the changing in the seasons. And that is absolutely a, an impact of climate change. It is something else that I do research on. We term it phenology, which refers to the timing of annually recurrent biological events. So that would be when flowers uh, appear at springtime, when you sow your crops, when they're going to produce fruits. And that is shifting. So the jacarandas in Johannesburg are flowering um, a full month earlier than they were in 1920. 
Um, and we're seeing that across all sorts of different indicators. Uh, the sardine run is occurring about a month and a half later than it used to because it's just too warm for that to occur. Uh, the Namaqualand daisies are flowering about a month earlier than they used to. And that is having significant impacts in terms of what we can grow, where we can grow it, and when we want to start to plant those crops. And, and a very important thing there is being able to go into rural communities that are largely subsistence communities and understanding from their perspective, what are you growing, how have you had to change it, and how are you noticing these changes are occurring? Okay, thank you so much. Please join me in thanking Jennifer. For those of you who are interested, I want to read some climate science. Uh, I've just put up the four key papers that I was speaking to today um, in this talk. If you can't access any of them, please feel free to email me. I'll send them through. Uh, there are quite a number more papers coming out uh, in the next probably year. Um, Michael Pillay is writing up three from his master's, and I've got another two that are in press. Thanks so much. Sure.